Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Front Lounge with Congos, episode 43. Um, this is brought to you by Sound Devices. They hooked us up with this thing called uh, the Mix Pre 10. It's what we use to record all of our podcasts. It is incredibly handy. It's got eight pre's on it. It sounds great. It's portable. It's bus-powered, for those of you who know what all of this means. But the point is it allows us to record all of our podcasts wherever we are, whether we're on the road or just in our front lounge or in Joshua Tree, uh, tripping on peyote, man. It's the size of a paperback novel that you would buy at an airport. Yeah. And you can plug in all these microphones, get a really good sound, plug it into com- your computer or, or your iPad, right? Or an iOS yeah, device. Yeah, whatever you and want. And you can record a professional-sounding podcast just like this, almost as good as NPR. Yeah, they also make the, the the recorder we use to film bus call. It allowed us to get six channels of audio along with all of video synced up and all that. So they're a really cool company. They they mostly make stuff for field recording. So people in the movie industry use a lot of these things because they're on location and they need you know lots of channels to be recorded remotely. And one more thing to mention about it is it works as an audio device that you can use your regular door to record, which is what we do. And then right. you can also record internally into a flash card. So you end up with a backup uh, yeah. without needing a computer or anything. You can record internally, and it's a little tiny touchscreen that's incredibly intuitively laid out. So mm-hmm. thank you to them for uh, sending that over to us, and let's get started on the podcast. We're going to do a track-by-track for 1929 Part 1, uh, and in just a little while we'll get into some details on each of the 10 songs on that album. But first, Colton is going to ask us some questions from our Patreon page. Uh, every month we try and do some answer some questions for people on Patreon. And these are just some generic questions. And then there's a couple, I think, that are specific to certain songs from this album that we'll get to in each song. So, Colton, how's it going? Good. I have some questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This question is from Igor. Hey, guys. Hope you are doing well. I've got just one question. Why fitness band sucks? <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny to see each other hating in your social network accounts. Every day I was looking forward to seeing a new prank. By the way, as a person who has never seen your performance live yet, I really enjoyed your performances with Mo and Fitness on stage. Also, thanks for live streams and Instagram. It was also cool to see Four Brothers playing the best music on the other side of the ocean. Colton did a great job, so he deserves more cookies. Uh, it was Jason doing this Instagram live most of the time, wasn't it? It's true, but it's my <laughs> idea. So. <laughs> um, Colton, did you write that question? <laughs> I, I embellished it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good first question. Why does fitness suck? Um, oh, is that the end of the question? It, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, he, he hit all the marks. He's he's quite he's hitting all of the things that we're doing. Um, oh, he said he wants to see us play in Moscow. Um, well, fitness sucks. I mean, you'd have to ask God that. I mean, God <laughs> makes a lot of mistakes in this world, and fitness is one of them. So I think it's his biggest regret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was actually probably the most fun part of the tour was just having this feud, you know, that we could wake up to every day and just get at. Um, because the rest of the tour, you know, that stuff starts to get routine and you're living your routine and it's great the shows are great and merch and whatever vip but this is something you get to put your creativity into is is insulting another band Mm -hmm. mostly kenny's fault that they suck yeah i think it's more max's fault but i feel like they equally suck Um, was there a second part to that question like a legitimate part I can't remember now. No. I turned off no. right after he said, why does fitness suck? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, well, I guess the way it ended, we would love to get back to Moscow and play. That was one of the top five shows, I think, ever. Mm-hmm. We even have that on video. Jesse's saying that. It's like, top five crowd ever. We have proof that he said it at the time, unprompted. You got another question for us, Colton? All right. So Jen Ford asks, at your shows this tour, you seemed more about growing closer to your fans than growing the bass. Is that more important to you currently, or are you still trying to push your music out everywhere and anywhere? Side note, did you sell all the limited show posters? It killed me. I couldn't buy mine that night, so hoping some... How, she's asking if we she can get it. <laughs> 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 Can't um, wait for parts two and three. 
Well, Jen Ford, this is a great question that allows us to promote the fact that we still have some of those posters left, right? I think, are they listed on the site, on the merch site? Which yeah, they as are. you're listening to this, they are now up on the website. Uh, they're discounted because obviously we've got them left over, but we don't have from a lot of the cities we did sell out. But if you f- find one from maybe a nearby city or a city you thought was cool, or just buy it because you like the look of the poster or whatever. Right. Let's now get to the fundamental of our question, which is are we trying to focus on our fans or grow the base? And the answer is always grow the base because then you have more fans. So. Yeah, I mean, look, we can we can spin it however we want, but the fact of the matter is, since Come With Me Now has died down a little bit, you know, our shows have gotten smaller, and we're finding out that these are the hardcore fans that'll come out and buy a ticket, and so by nature, the venues are a bit smaller, and uh, we are actually closer to the fans. A lot of a lot of them we've seen multiple times now on these tours. They come to VIP over Physically and over again. Physically closer as well. Yeah. <laughs> so. Maybe it maybe it has that feeling because we didn't have lights in production. So I think I think this tour was the most intimate and kind of but there maybe, was a lot of connection between the band and the fans, but it wasn't like some specific thing where we're singling out fans as opposed to newcomers. It was just the nature of the shows and the way they flowed. Well we definitely arranged the set uh knowing that we were going to get a bit more attentive audience, I think. We knew it was going to be more hardcore fans that would be more interested in hearing perhaps some deeper songs on the albums and earlier songs or whatever. Mm. And that was the, my favorite part about the tour, was the fact that we, it felt like almost every show we had close to zero walkout. And you know, long ago we'd placed bigger shows, but we would actually see a fair amount of people that just wanted to see Come With Me and they'd leave. Yeah. And so that's it was fitness pretty much watched every single show, like all of it. They were just trying <laughs> to learn something. <laughs> um, make no mistake, though, uh, if for whatever reason our shows got really big and we were playing arenas, we would not complain about that. Yeah. All right. Here's a brain buster for you. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Waters asked, what is your favorite sandwich condiment? Johnny, you're first. Sandwich condiment. You're the oldest. Jeez. If we end up with it, the next time we go on tour, if, who's asking this? Jessica? Mm-hmm. I'm going to think uh, scotch is my favorite <laughs> condiment. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to get a big case of uh, mayonnaise. Um, i got to say Dijon mustard, I think. I'm going to go with French whole grain mustard. Um you know, with with sort of anything pickled, with pickled peppers of any kind, pickled jalapenos as a close second. Uh, pass. Let me go with pickles. Next. What is pass, Danny? <laughs> I'm pass on the question. I can't pick one. Uh, it depends on the comments. context. It depends on the context of the sandwich. I'm not going to answer this. <laughs> All right, that's it for the uh, generic questions that Colton picked from the bunch. Uh, Why don't we just get into it? 1929 Part 1 came out in January, so it's been out for about two months now. Um, And we played actually, what, six or seven songs from the album on tour, which was quite a lot, you know. I don't think we had that much adoption even from Egomaniac early on on the tour. It took us a while to add some of those songs in and learn them, but... They seemed to work pretty well. And we did figure out as we went on tour uh, how to play them better, you know. So the first song is Something New. And Jesse wrote that one. So do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, so it was. I wrote it. It was one of the first songs I wrote. I say one of the first 10 songs I wrote. Um, and it was in 2005. It was, it was when we were still recording the first album and still writing the first album. And I remember there was some debate about whether to finish the song and put it on that album or not, and we decided to just save it. And then, as always, we all write songs, more songs than we have on the album, and it just kind of it fell to the back burner, and we never focused on it. And then, for whatever reason, some new sounds, new synths, and a, new, a slightly new approach to it really brought the song to the forefront for this album. And uh, I would say, lyrically, it's about you know, a conflict, whether it's in a relationship or, or another kind where your background and the language that you speak and everything that sort of defines you, you know, the culture that you acquire from childhood um, is not necessarily compatible with everybody. And, and in order to find a way to discuss or to 
get on the same page with somebody, you've got to sort of un untangle that, you know, your different backgrounds and your different ideas so that you can get to something truthful and es- essential. The record, anyone want to talk about the record? I think it's pretty cool. Well, the interesting thing about that is over, what, 14 or 15 years, it didn't fundamentally change. The, no. Even the treatment, I'm obviously re-recorded most, if not all, the instruments and everything. Did you use anything from original demos or not? The vocal was pretty much original. Um, you mean the vocal itself was actually... Fortunate? Not from the the demo. It was from very early on when I decided to record it properly. Um, the, the, the whole thing was sort of based on this bass line that, you know, I even looked at my computer at old files and I before I had a name for the song it was just it said Bach like bass line you know a Bach like chord sequence or something like that so it's this sort of almost classical sounding chord sequence like a cello suite that moves through chord changes in what I was trying to you know achieve a sort of logical chord sequence like a lot of Bach chord sequence where it just makes sense it makes mathematical sense the way it flows and then everything sort of built around that. And then the the chorus is a little more hooky and poppy. But um, that was the impetus. Yeah, the chord sequence is, it's a, one of the most common chord sequences in the world. But it sounds quite different in this day and age because people only use four chords now, it seems, particularly in alternative, alternative music. The bridge, though, is a... Uh is a little twisty, you know, and that's kind of, that's the part that I like. It's a little bit more obscure. It's hard for people to grasp at first, I think, but then once you get it, it's a sort of strange melody. What is the chord sequence? Well, the opening of the verse is six, five, or sorry, six, two, five, one. One, one six, two, five, one is called rhythm changes. It's, it was the, uh, I mean, it's been going since Bach, which is obvious, or yeah, before even, but in the thirties and twenties, all the, songwriters there wrote used it so much that it became known as known as rhythm changes because that song i've got rhythm yeah is that that's what everyone just call it and now so jazz people just play they just say let's play rhythm changes right. and it's just yeah. a set of changes that everybody knows now it's treated a bit differently the way jesse's doing it but it's essentially that right you know yeah um, i mean uh I guess I'm just I'm gonna ask you music lessons questions afterwards. Like a six two is the same as a five one relatively. So it's like a yeah, steep, double actually a one six two five one. I'm pretty sure it is starting E. B minor E. It's in D the ver, the verse is in D minor. So it starts on six to E, which is a two, <laughs> to the A, which is a five into D minor, which is the one. Now, they're ver- there's, it's, a, it's variations on that because it's not the exact tonality of in, in D minor that would be diff- like the E wouldn't be a, a yeah. seventh chord. I guess it, it depends on what key you consider it to be in because I kind of consider it to be in A. A? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> well, before you guys go on, um, do you have any other songs that are that far back in the vault? Um, um, Jen Ford wanted to know what year was that? Two thousand five. I've yeah. got one. I don't think so. Called, uh, well, not out yet. Yeah, not out. That's we're working on that. It was written in two thousand five. What interference? No, it's a, a really weird one with all the epic. The, we I cut that funny epic video too. Okay. Yeah. I think I have one from not as old as I think two thousand six. Maybe. I don't think I wrote a song. Really. Or at least one that was releasable until later than that. Because we released our first album in 2007, right? I don't know if you've written a song that's releasable. <laughs> <laughs> I tricked you guys into putting them on the album. <laughs> uh, one thing to just mention that we are planning on doing a behind the song for every song on this album. It would probably take us a little while to get that done, but that is the yeah. plan. So just keep an eye out on our YouTube channel and we'll get more into the production and everything behind each song. Um, second song... Colton, I know you've got a question about this song. Can it, can we say what it is? I've forgotten the track list. I am not me. I am not me. I am not me. Um, Roberto asks, why can I not be free till I am not me? <laughs> um, well, I like to write the silly dumb lyrics in the band <laughs> that Dylan has a hard time singing because all the verses are like 
just mild variations of one another in a confusing fashion. I think it's just the amount of pronouns. Yeah. Um. I was actually making it. I was. I don't know if this is correct. You'd have to actually analyze it. But I noticed a lot of my songs are more I, me, we sort of stuff, and Jesse's always like. You. you, they, w- not one. Right. He's still talking. He's still Third often, person. yeah, but you're still often talking about yourself or you could be directed at yourself, but there's a difference in the, in the, uh, that is a approach. conscious decision that people like Nashville hit writers, they choose their pronouns. It, they, they almost invariably, if somebody writes a lyric with her or him, she, them, they change it to you, I, me. They just basically reformat the lyric. Usually, so that it's applicable it's, across any. So it feels more personal. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a story, you know. Like, and that—that's <laughs> why most lyrics kind of just sound like, "You didn't do this, and I don't need you, and I blah 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 blah." Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I am not me. The chorus for me really is about trying to observe the person within yourself that you would identify as I or me. And sometimes when you do that, you observe that and you realize that that is not necessarily you or the complete picture of you. So by observing that and becoming more aware of the fact that whoever identifies themselves as I, as in Johnny or whoever, Danny, is an inconsistent and uh, schizophrenic, to use like a silly word for it, uh, identity or personality and that in observing these I think you can become freer because you're not so attached to any one uh, inst- instance or instantia- instantiation of yourself we were, we were just talking about this kind of unrelated because Rachel and I you know, were discussing parenting and reading some things about it and one of the things that Eve is going through developmentally and and you know at around 2 years old as they start to get language they um the idea of almost being able to identify yourself or observe yourself or or become outside of your identified self which is your emotions or whatever you're going through in, in any given state you know I'm angry or I'm upset or I want the toy you know um and one of the ways that you begin to develop this is by telling the story about something that happened, you know, so if she has a tantrum or is upset about something, and then, you know, you subsequently, when she calms down, discuss it and she'll tell the story like, Oh, what, you know, why, why did you get upset? Or, you know, and she, and she kind of speaks in third person. Now she goes, Evie crying, you know, Evie was crying um, because, you know, spilled the water or whatever. <laughs> and so <clears throat> it's almost like this, it trains into you this ability to separate yourself from, a previous state, you know, as though that, you know, the person is not necessarily real. It was just a state. Yeah. That's very interesting to hear about how a kid would develop that sense and how much of it is educate our sense of identity is being educated into us. The, the way we describe I or me and the kind of uh, delineations we draw between self and not self, like how many, how much of that is just a, a construct well, that I don't, I can't remember the psychiatrist's name, but she had a theory that she some she verified to a degree. I don't know. You obviously can't put yourself in the shoes of a or the state of a like pre toddler, but she was saying that kids don't think of their parents as consistent people. They think of them as like the the mean mom or the nice mom, and they're two different people to them, mm. and. I wonder if that's closer to the truth, whereas when you grow up, you get older and you think of yourself as this container for all of your emotions, whereas a child who hasn't learned to categorize or doesn't have uh, object permanence or whatever they call it, where things are as consistent, they they view these two, these different identities within their parents. Well, it's also, that's a perhaps a better way to look at things, because when you do become too identified with thinking that this I and this ego that you are is the be-all and end-all, then you take everything that it does seriously. Whereas if you did look at it as a different person, then you'd perhaps have better control or um, be less susceptible to any individual one of your identities, you know, running the show. 
It's like the difference between a front camera selfie and a mirror selfie. <laughs> well, let's talk about the record a little bit. Um, you had a demo of this that was certain aspects of the song were we, from the demo were used, you know, key aspects like the some of the rhythm, the claps, and the, a lot of the vocal, and you know, a lot of the synth parts and everything, because it kind of had this hypnotic groove, you know, that you hap- you worked on and happened upon in your demo studio. And then we tried to figure out a way to put the band on it, but why don't you talk about those? Yeah, I think there were about four or five uh, main elements. There was uh, two synths and uh, some claps I recorded in, again, on my crappy Beta 58, or not crappy Beta 58, but like, you know, not recorded properly with the speakers up as I typically do. And the groove of that, I kept coming back to every time we would feel like we couldn't get locked on it. And those didn't change at all. I mean, the quantize on the synths stayed exactly the same and everything about that stayed the same. And then we eventually got the rest of the instruments, I think, to match and complement and kind of move with that groove. It took several takes on the drums, I know, to get it to feel right until you did, we ended up using two drums. I took a loop from one set of takes you'd done like months ago. And then we said, let's take another pass at it. And you just went in and played, I think not even multi-tracked. It was just like a single mic or, or very few Few mics. mics, And uh, found that we end up using two full sets of drums kind of panned relatively hard left and right and just created this big washing sound that sounds a little uh, New Orleans-y, second-line type uh, feel to it. Yeah, I remember hearing the demo and thinking the groove was quite unusual. You know, the synth has got that egg-rolly thing where it's in between. It's kind of the distance between each of the uh, parts is shifting a little bit. It's like moving between a triplet and something else, and it's just it feels... It feels slightly unsteady, but in a good way. Yeah. Um, I guess what on that the track, that's Mick was here when we were recording that uh, slide solo. or get, It's not even a slide. It was a, just a no, guitar, right? Uh, I don't think you played slide. Part of it's a slide. Yeah. I, I but that we tried to recreate that sound. We even had notes and pictures of all the settings, mm-hmm. and we could never get it right. It was never. I think we either got some of the. We wrote down some of the settings wrong, or it was just one of those kind of yeah. magical sounds that just sounded really cool. Um, there was a couple times tracking where the guitar amps and mics were patched or labeled wrong. So you pull it up on the preamp, you know, listening to it because the amps are in the other room. You can't see them, right. and so we like we think you're recording one microphone and one amp, and then turns out you're actually it was a microphone that was pointing at another amp, you know, in totally the wrong position, mm. but it got a really cool sound. And so, you you know, you make a mistake and get a really cool sound. That's um, well, That was one of the first tracks that you used the bathroom, the lavi mic, I think, on that guitar sound. Yeah. That's, that's when the Mike- money for nothing story, is that they had a new engineer, new assistant engineer, and they said, go put a mic in the room. Or like, he didn't know what they wanted him to do, so he just left the mic in the doorway of the room. And they tracked all of those money for nothing guitars, which became like an iconic riff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they then only realized that they just tracked them with kind of mic just facing nowhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's happy accidents. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, let's move on to the next song, which is "Stand Up," I believe. Yes, and this is a song I wrote. In, I think, 2011, so... Is this at your standing desk? No, I hadn't got that yet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this was also in that uh, in-between period where we'd had the beginning of a South African career, I think, because... No, I have to mind. Really? I thought this was later than that. No, this was before even South Africa had taken off. They worked on it after that, but it was... Yeah, before that, we just had worked on it, and it started with this little loop uh, of that four chord sequence which is a really simple European sort yeah, of European feel. like uh, harmonic minor based mode uh, simple chords uh, and I think I went through several sections on that there was a another chorus in there that I think we eventually decided to pull out um, and I'll probably end up using that elsewhere 
But so it doesn't really have a chorus. It doesn't feel like to me this song. It's more just a. I think I think of the verse as the strongest part of the song. I don't know about you guys. Like that for me is the hook. Stand up, you know. Yeah, I mean the bridge is interesting and a nice break, and it leads back into the verse. But yeah, it's kind of chorusless. I don't mind that. It's more of a vibe. Choruses sometimes fuck up a vibe. Yeah. So I I it gets it prevents you from chugging along. You know, it's it's I like. Um, the accordion this, solo, I think, is yeah. That's the strongest. That's my favorite part of the track. That's the best the accordion solo I've ever recorded. That's the best accordion solo anybody's ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> when did, was that, Wilson? In your room? Yeah, on a Beta Fifty Eight st- <laughs> on top of my uh, desk. Shout out to Sure because we're doing this podcast on Sure microphones and Beta Fifty Eight's like the, or it's kind of like the SM Fifty Eight. It's basically one of the most standard microphones you see everybody in every club ever singing on. Yeah, um, but it's not really meant for studio recording. Um, yeah, although it's good, it it's good enough for you to uh, Joshua Tree. All the vocals were done on a fifty-eight. So, yeah. anyway, it's it it gets the essentials. It's not the most detailed, perfectly crisp mic ever, but it's essential. This is another one of those songs where I couldn't really sing the bridge chorus in the higher register, so we do the Johnny Dylan combo, I guess. I sing, I sing the verses and then Dylan comes in over the top to hit the high notes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sounded like a sports analogy. Yeah. Dylan like, comes in over the top <laughs> and he's tagging in. Alley-oop, <laughs> slam dunk. Lyrically, the high note. this song Daniel's is... the assist. This song is... I won't, I guess, say too much about it. It's an alien love song. You, <laughs> you, you figure out what that means. Um, song number four is Pay for the Weekend. Or as Eve calls it, weekend, <laughs> weekend, weekend. Um, yeah. So this song, uh, I feel like we talked about it on one of the podcasts already. But uh, the lyric I just I wrote, <laughs> no joke, while I was doing yoga. <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was uh, is right when we had moved to LA, and I was doing yoga, trying to stay in shape, and um, I had the phrase "pay for the weekend" come to my head you know because i'd also i had that so it was at the time that that song by the band with jonas brother uh dnce or what dance the um, cake by the ocean or something and it just like it was this stupid phrase that they turned into a hit song you know and so in this sort of same vein the phrase pay for the weekend came to me and then while i was stretching you know the i was thinking of the words in my head and then i wrote wrote them on an iphone note afterwards and it just kind of sat on my phone for a while uh, then driving around one day, I had I had this synth sound in my head and sort of a riff that went and that like that's all I had. It was just for some reason going in my head. So I went and tried to try to program what I was thinking, and it it turned into this shuffly, almost Ethiopian groove, you know, where. Somebody, I saw somebody on Twitter mention this, or somebody's talking about clapping on one and three. You know, like normally um, you try and get people to clap on two and four because that's the cool sort of, sort of swingy way to do it. But there's a lot of African rhythms where they clap on the downbeat, and it's way fucking cool in my opinion. So uh, it's a ch- sort of chuggy, stompy rhythm. That yeah, this rhythm again is a lot of that egg roll thing that we've talked about, and it's. Not it's not just Ethiopian or I mean it's not it's like more specific than Eritrean. Ethiopian music. Eritrean or or northern Ethiopian, which I know that's probably a, is a very contested question because there's been wars between Ethiopia and Eritrea for a long time. But it's called Tigrigna music, I believe. Hmm. And um, there's some really amazing shit out there on an album called Ethiopics Volume Six or Eleven or Five. It's the one with the hmm. green cover, and. That rhythm and the, that album is one of the coolest things ever. Yeah, there's a couple versions of Tezeta on that, I think. Yeah. Everybody does a version of that. I, and the word means nostalgia, um, which is funny because of... It's like Sodad. Sodad, yeah. yeah. It's a similar feeling to the Portuguese music that's always talking about Sodad or Sodaji. It's a kind of like longing or missing nostalgia. You see, there are a lot of uh, music that we listen to or a lot of this type of stuff has that it's a form basically that everyone uses to tell kind of the same story and convey the same emotion because in like Greek music is embekiko music 
it's all very similar. They're using similar rhythms. It's often talking about the same things. It's like and it's, uh, del- like traditional old 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 Delta blues almost. Yeah, it's just like they don't they like they're not interested in necessarily inventing some brand new wheel. It's just a way to express your feelings with a, a given form, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting way of doing things because it's not all. And that's something like in terms of playing. Occasionally, it is nice to just play something that everybody knows. Like and we can all agree upon, like the you know, like the blues. Or if you go into walk into a jazz club and they're having a jam session, everyone can agree on like fifteen songs. Everybody knows. We don't have to think about what happens now. Yeah. You know, have a conversation about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I mean, it's basically a drone all the way through. The harmony is also Ethiopia influenced, and I can trace back. Remember that van tour that we did in two thousand fourteen? Yeah. Before. Yeah. Uh, um, Right, right when Come With Me Now was sort of blowing up. St. Louis? Yeah. We went and uh, a van broke down. And we finally got the van back and it was like 10 p.m. We found a restaurant that was open. It was an Ethiopian restaurant. And we went and ordered this food and kept ordering more and more sambusas, which is like a fried lentil pie. And we, we're still hungry. Like, can we just, can we order more pies? And the guy's like, no, you don't need more. It's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's just, we want to, we'll eat them. We want to order the these pies. <laughs> Um, but they had, it was pretty much empty, but there was a couple like either regulars or family friends eating there and they were playing this music and they got up and danced and it was a guy called Abraham Afuerki, who is an Eritrean singer. And we all, we'd never heard that rhythm before uh, any of us, I think. Yeah. And we all just th- said, what the fuck is that? And it was so cool. And we, we asked for the name and, and later looked it up. So, um, that, that definitely years later played into the treatment of this song. Yeah, we don't do it often. Ethiopian food now is kind of like how I used to be about Indian food when I was a kid. Whenever someone would suggest to go eat Indian food, I never wanted to go. And then we'd go, and I, had, I was like, oh, I love this. Yeah. And then you'd say again, let's go. And I, I feel like I'm like that way with Ethiopian food now because in L.A. there's a massive, not massive, but there's a big part of town called Little Ethiopia with tons and tons of Ethiopian restaurants and bars and shops and everything and it's great food and I'm always like I don't feel like going and then I go and I say why don't we do this every week Mm. Um, lyrically it's about karma it's a party song about karma about you know paying 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 for everything comes and goes in a cycle and has has an expense Um, that's all I need to say about that well, that you're. Well, if you're saying you wrote this or you had the initial idea of doing yoga, that's appropriate because it doesn't. When if you go out for a big night of drinking or you do a week of eating pizza like I did in New York recently, and you go back to doing some yoga, that sensation of like, oh fuck, and I have to pay for all of that. Yeah, it's uh, really visceral. Um, I like the Todd Glass joke about karma. <laughs> I was at uh, Costco the other day stealing some cashews and i thought what did they do to deserve this <laughs> <laughs> it's just a perfect take on, on karma when i was in nicaragua i tried to tell that joke and basically i was the only american there and there were only germans austrians swiss and um Dutch. perfect audience for a joke yeah. yeah all people that english is their second language and then no they were actually fun they were right yeah, yeah. well humored um but english was their second language so a lot of the jokes i said just went whew over their head and then I had to describe I had to say no I, I wasn't actually stealing from a from a store oh um just one last thing to say on pay for the weekend just so we can bring this up we're going to try and bring this up all the time uh bus call if you haven't seen it this was another one of those instances where it worked perfectly for a scene you know it's the scene in Europe where Jesse's talking about the bus and the bumpiness of the road and he says you know he had a hard time sleeping every night the bus is going ga 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 and they just worked perfectly the synth to transition into that scene. Um, Song number five on the album is Wild Hearts. This is a Dylan song. Um, This one was written immediately after getting into a big blow-up argument with uh, a girlfriend of mine at the time and on a full moon. Um, And it's kind of just about that, about the momentum of an argument or um, a negative state, how it just kind of takes over and you're not in any control of yourself at that moment. And maybe having something to do with the cycles of the moon 
Um, and then on the record, we, I remember I recorded most of it just with Mick. I think I recorded guitar and vocals. Um, Mick was in the, the control room and I was downstairs and all the lights were off. And I think, I think we got, we got it that night only like one or two takes, both the vocals and the guitar. Is that um, guitar is the, that country gentleman? Yeah. It's the Gretsch. Um, yeah, perfect guitar for that. Guitar. And um, what else? Oh yeah, and then when, when Danny came and we were working on it, it needed something. I didn't want to add really anything to it um, because it had a nice captured a nice vibe. But then Danny started messing around on your OB six, right? Was mm-hmm. it? Yeah, and got that kind of waffling synth that comes in, and it doesn't change key. It just stays in one um, droney. Um, key or sound for basically the whole song against the chords that yeah, are changing against the chords right? that are changing and it, yeah. it, it added this kind of eeriness and um it almost added space even though it's filling up a ton of the space on the record it added more space i like the sort of the tremolo of that thing added a shimmer to it you know well the ob <laughs> the synth thing you know that that the guitar also i think it's just an you just took LFO with a bunch of noise and the cutting, you know, changing the filters. It's just kind of like a shuffly thing. This yeah, is where you also did your wind. chains. You can get wind sounds nicely with noise. Yeah, your chains yeah. trick on the drums. Oh yeah, um, but what I want to say was that sort of that sort of tremolo sound and the, the the guitar was just slightly out of tune, you know. So there was some some wavering there. I don't know if you were using the tremolo bar when you played it or. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. it's it's a really hard, some of the chords are really hard to get in tune mm. um, with the other chords in the song. Well, so I oh, kind of was also bending some we, of the notes. We that, used the arp, right, for the theremin. Yeah, we used the arp for the yeah, theremin but melody. I just finished my sentence about the shimmering. <laughs> 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 the tremolo, you know, the tremolo inherently is nostalgic, I think. I don't know if it's inherently, but it's certainly associated with nostalgia, you know. And when you hear something that's slightly out of tune, it reminds you of an old record or tape that would wobble, give you that sort of sound. And that's what made it sound almost old fashioned. And it, when, when it has that effect, I think it makes the message timeless in some way where, you know, it kind of pulls it out of the, the space of a modern recording and it puts it in a time where it almost doesn't matter or you don't know when it was recorded. And, yeah. Well, the chorus has, and the harmonies on the chorus and the melody of it is kind of Everly Brothers esque. Yeah, I think it has that, and and then the other fun thing that we did was um, added a bunch of sound effects. I uh, wanted to sound kind of like a campfire song, but with a little bit of chaos going on as it went to the third chorus and kind of really lyrically started to describe the chaos of um, wild or crazy hearts, um, and just used all these different sounds of like people laughing or screaming in bars and, and there's owl and fire sounds and all sorts of things in it that um, just added to this element of chaos. Well, again, this is another one of those songs that just fit perfectly for episode eight of Bus Call. Uh, you know, it's whoever did the music supervising on that show is a fucking genius. Um. <laughs> I did, oh, the drums, I did use the two in the morning trick on two in the morning from Egomaniac, uh, set up the kit to have all these chains and stuff in my hand. And I used mallets with all the, the snare turned off and recorded it, you know, with distant ribbon mics. And so you can barely even hear the drums, but it's just like, it's almost like Henry Mancini, you know, that spacious, Tommy uh, timpani sound and the the chains just falling on the drums gives it an atmosphere. That Henry Mancini song that you're referencing is called Luhan, right? Or Lu Luhan. That's from that's someone. The Cohen brothers are geniuses of uh, music supervision because they use that in the Big Lebowski, right? For the scene mm. with Jackie Treehorn, the pornographer man. Yeah, and uh, it's it is just such a dreamy space space song that one Henry Mancini Lujan um next Dylan you gotta keep talking this one's called Real Life <laughs> um Real Life well we talked about this quite a lot on the that podcast where we, it was the first song we released from 1929 um it was I think it's kind of the first and only well, maybe not only but definitely the first song I 
wrote and recorded for the most part under the influence of cannabis um because it was inspired lyrically by i was out camping with some some friends and we were out in this really pristine nature um by a creek and we had all smoked a little weed and we were hiking down the creek and like picking blackberries and eating and i just kept thinking to myself like this I, i had the feeling of kind of primordial life um or ancient life before any type of modern technology and i thought this is real life you know i kept this phrase kept on going around my head this is real life this is real life um and then i got back to reality in the city and um recording it on a computer which takes you know a lot of engineering and um, a totally different type of intelligence and um, attention to create the things that i was able to record a song on um and so it's kind of about that about this thinking that real life is one thing, um, but that it's actually many different things. And as long as you're bringing your kind of full attention or presence to moments and to what you're doing, that 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 is the prerequisite for real life, not necessarily just being in nature. Right. Um, We didn't end up playing this one live much. It just didn't fit in the set for most of it. We did do an acoustic version of it. I think started to get somewhere with the accordion because it's just very simple chords, but I don't, they're, they're nice. And I, I hopefully uh, I can we can do it some more because I never felt like I actually got to solo over that correctly. It's mm. so simple that it actually is hard. You know, sometimes when things are very simple, it makes it much harder to uh, be able to put any kind of m- melodic idea. That's over why it. guys like David Lindley and that kind of player. I think are under underrated. He was the pedal, the lap, lap steel pedal uh, player for uh, Jackson, Jackson Brown. Because yeah. it'd be simple chords or kind of predictable melodies. And even though he's playing, he's playing, he's kind of referencing the melody, but it's just super tasty, good yeah. playing. I record the like the vocal is all in pretty much one or two takes as well. All everything was kind of done one night in my bedroom. But then, if you hear the very first um, iteration of it, the chords are different they're much more simple and actually a lot more boring and i when i went back and listened to it i just i thought this there's something really missing in the harmony and then that one chord change on the word real life came in yeah um that yeah well that we were saying about david linley the real test of like jazz musicians is their ballad playing and that's where you kind of separate the Men from the boys, as they say, because everyone can that's halfway good can kind of bullshit their way through a fast solo, but when you slow things down to a crawl, it kind of highlights all the inadequacies. Mm-hmm. Um, next song, Keep Your Head. This song we also kind of addressed in a previous podcast, but it's about being stuck in your head, and you know, uh, it's lyrically semi-critical of that but musically i basically just wanted to make a track that encouraged that so that you get to dance around with all the kind of ear candy and feel like you're in a bit of a dream state so it's i wanted it to just kind of chug along and put you in a little bit of a dreamy state you know well i think you'd mentioned this in the podcast we did it specifically about this song but why don't you just briefly talk about where the, the idea came to you in New York, right? Yeah, we went to New York one year and then we came back a couple of years later and every everybody was on their phone. I think it was iPhone 2 or something. Whatever it was, iPhone 2 or 3 had come out where more people started to get them and it was just, it exploded and people were, you're used to New York being kind of people looking where they're going, you know, and walking with intention and doing stuff with intention and they have a kind of quick awareness about them and just overnight it had people had just disappeared into their world which is completely understandable in new york because when you're sitting on the subway at six in the morning and you're surrounded by people you want to just get away from that shit um but it was it's obviously uh it's become all encompass it's all consuming now you know you're just always doing your own thing it's uh i have not been on instagram since the beginning of the year and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'll end up going back on at some point but it's nice not having that constant 
flow of noise from there. Like, you know, I find other ways to use my phone because I am addicted to it. You know, I end up like checking mm. stuff out on maps. Like, I wonder how far it is to that coffee shop. Let me check that like 14 times. <laughs> but, you know, so like it's still, it's, it's so ingrained already in my thumbs, but not having that constant stream of shit that you do not need to know about yeah. hitting you in the face is, is nice. Um, well, I just got a Mazda car um, and it's got CarPlay in it. And so it can put, Instagram I can actually put Instagram on my windshield. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I was going to say about Keep Your Head, like a lot of songs on this album, playing it live, what we I think we all agreed and f- discovered perhaps for ourselves was this album, We ha- you have to play it and not push it. You can't try to make it more than what it was. Like Keep Your Head for Me particularly is one of those songs where I really had to just resist the temptation to feel like, oh, this is going to be like a banger. We're going like, to make this song big. And, and if you, the more you relaxed and sat back into it mm-hmm. and just let it occur, the better it felt and the better the crowd reaction was. And it was a very yeah. subtle like distinction it, in how you approached playing it. But it, it seemed to get better the more on a lot of these songs, like I Am Not Me also. You just had to sit back and let it be what it was. I kept wanting to cut it from the set because I felt like it wasn't working and also the riff is a little hard to play when I'm singing and that kind of stuff. Um, but then eventually when we just chilled out, it's almost like I just, one night I was like, I was sick. I didn't believe in it basically, so I just didn't give a shit. And then we chilled out and then uh, the second verse hits, which is the dreamy verse. And I realized, oh, this is what works about this track. This is it's the dreamy stuff that works, you know, live as well as on the record. So, yeah, this song was uh, like a mini, uh, the microcosm of how I think our set was on this last tour, where it is a slow but really good payoff. You know, at the end, it it does build once we, it, the sections we added live, kind of taking that more into that six eight groove section, mm-hmm. builds that nicely. Um, song eight or. Yeah, song eight is Everything Must Go. Again, we've talked about this song a lot on the first podcast we did about it, but um, if we, I don't know if we have, if we'll ever have time, but I feel like there's a different version of this song that we could not even necessarily record again, but put out like a pared down version. So I, I don't want to make any promises, but if we had time, it would be cool to work on that because something in the recording of this song, the way it is on the album, is cool, but. I think a lot of people seem to miss the song because they're hearing perhaps too much instrumentation or it's very... It's like the treatment. Fran- it's work. frantic, which works. I think it's fine, but there's a, the verses and the choruses don't necessarily come across as no, well the as The way we did it live um, a couple times on tour was, is the way we should just put another version of it out because it sells the song, the verse and the bridge and the chorus. And then... Uh, the groove and and all the energy can come in, but at least we've established the yeah. It's like heart of the song. It sets up the expectation incorrectly the way it currently is on this album mm. version. You know what? Now I mean, I, I, we we never want to go backwards. Obviously, we always want to work on new stuff. But now that we own our fucking masters, what I want to do is a mix, a mix of the record, which is how we do it in the studio, where we basically just highlight the three things we like. We should do that to every song and print that and put it on Spotify <laughs> because I really like every time you go into the studio and you just turn down faders, you're like, oh, I like just hearing just the um, I mean, everything must go, just that synth and a vocal, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I get, lyrically, it was about, it's, it's, I mean, some of it's actually pretty blatant. It's like literally about money and obsession with money. You know, you can read into it a little more deeply if you'd like to, but it was a bit where we were uh, at in terms of career and dealing with the business side of things and that that felt wrongly um, prioritized. It's not that it should be ignored. It's just that it was wrongly prioritized even subconsciously, you know, and just an attempt to kind of get away from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the drum, sort of 90s drum and bass feel to some of it is fun, you know, and um, can definitely hear our influences there. When we used to play um, instrumental jazz stuff before the before Congo started, Johnny and I were at ASU studying jazz and we would do long experimental drum and bass stuff. And <clears throat> I think we're basically 90s kids, you know. Um, 
And in the UK and in South Africa, drummer bass was so huge. It was so powerful and influential in it. I don't think it was ever quite as strong here in America, but right. I, because but, we were living in South Africa, that Johnny and I, like, that was our shit, you know? <laughs> 90s in Europe was, I mean, I know that America had grunge and, you know, that kind of stuff, but the, I think it was way more interesting in Europe, basically. Japan. I guess they got hip hop. I mean, they had like, yeah. like the. Never mind. It's just different worlds. Yeah. For at least, but I just found out there's this 20 year weekly event that or monthly event that's been going on in LA, a drum and bass night, and it's it moved to a club downtown. It used to be at this one not too far from us here in Hollywood, and I thought about going, like yeah, go find some old 90s clothes and like. <laughs> I, went, I went to Techno Tuesdays in Amsterdam, at Melkweg. It was crazy. They got everybody got. I, mean, I know they do that in some places here, but they everybody got searched on all their bags and everything, patted down and wanted and stuff. I think probably because people bringing pills for a techno night, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was they were really good DJs. They had really good like long attention spans. It's really fun when a DJ doesn't change the track every three seconds and they just kind of let something sit. Ooh, I had the worst experience of that in <laughs> Nicaragua. Yeah, I hate that shit. It was unbearable. The guy that like he was scratching on every song, and he was switching songs uh, after twenty seconds, and he had like twenty second crossovers or yeah. crossfades. It was like unfucking bearable. Well, you just because, feel like you're in an, in an insane asylum. Yeah. Yeah. But techno and drum and bass and all those things are so underground here that most people's exposure to them is in like a weird club environment where it's. Like there's a tradition in Germany, like on, in uh, the Netherlands, of like their own house thing, and like you know it's not fucking jazz or whatever, but there is like a tradition and there's a real history to Dutch techno specifically or Dutch deep house and that, and so they do like even though it's still just people going and getting high and dancing to music, like they are appreciating more the musical form of a well thought out house track or uh, techno track, you know. Yeah. Um, um, did you go to Paradiso? No, I. It was not. It didn't turn into a club night uh, on that night. Um, it was. Yeah, that's a crazy place. It's a an old church that they converted into a venue, so and they do bands and you know whatever during the um, the night, and then at 10 p.m. on a bunch of nights, it shuts down and turns into a club. They do a disco loadout, you know. And yeah, I've never seen a club like that. It just that vibe. Um, next song is When You're Here. This is a Dylan song. <clears throat> um, this was written, I think, during the Egomaniac cycle. And then, but the treatment wasn't right. Like, I had some fake drums on it that were uh, a little bit too aggressive. And, but the essence of the song was there. And then we brought it back uh, a couple years later. Uh, lyrically, it's about kind of trying to avoid constantly wanting to be somewhere else or wanting to be in some other moment. Um, and when you find some kind of tranquility or find some uh, peace in moments, you got to be careful not to try to squeeze them too hard Like and be gentle with the lyric, be gentle with your touch kind of. Um, when you try too hard to capture it or try too hard to hold on to it, something it slips through your fingers like water or whatever. Um, and the the song, I think it, it was after a lot of listening to Kings of Leon, listening to um, their set a lot, and how they write a lot of these songs, which are the choruses are just slight variations of the melodies of the verses, which is this song basically. The chorus is very similar to the um, versus with just a slight alteration in the chords or the harmony, um, but somehow it works. It just it constantly um, satisfies you, and uh, and the treatment of it as well. I think we we kind of were influenced a lot by some of the Kings of Leon records. I remember, I mean, we we knew the song for many years before we actually re- recorded it because um, you had a demo, <clears throat> and we all saw the potential in it, but it just it just didn't feel right. You know, it was. Like you said, it was a bit aggressive and bashy. And so we went in this new room in LA and we started playing it. And they cut, like, I think you were, I think we were maybe even playing it together or, but it had, we, we got this 
slightly trippy feel to that. You know, it's the same rhythm that you had, but we made it just kind of trippy and made made it a little wobbly. You know, the the subdivisions of the drums and the bass and everything. It's it's not stiff. It's like it swims a bit. And What's weird about that is a uh, volume changes the feel. If you if you if your second little you know don't 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 if you when you change the volume of that second kick drum if it changes the feel it feels yeah. like it changes the timing you know this uh, this right sounds very different from right. the uh, the thing that really cha- <coughs> changed it from like a kind of conventional. Um, almost country-ish song was bringing in that synth, the triplet synth in the second verses. Because all of a sudden now it does have a trippy outer space feel while all the other sounds are kind of retro. The guitar sounds are retro. There's a pedal steel. I think it's the only pedal steel solo since Lunatic mm-hmm. that we have. And I recorded it in my room and you can still, I just put a mic next to the amp so you can still, and no DI, so you can still feel or hear all the pedal movements, all the clicking of the pedals. It does have like a country bar, you know, like Star Wars feel. You know, like there's a little country yeah. bar on another planet, you know, or something I like that. I keep hearing, uh, everybody keeps talking, that's such a useful reference is that because it's such a iconic scene is the bar in Star Wars. You know, anytime somebody wants to describe something that has that feel, they use that. But we got a little obsessed with ARPs on the whole albums. We had to cut a bunch of them out of other songs, but this one like, worked too well too. Yeah, this was a different usage of it, I felt. It's you, also you, you could have had an instrument playing that. It, like, it didn't sound like, oh, let's put a computer arpeggiator. It sounded like, well, you could have had a cello playing that part, but we'll use it, a synth to do it, yeah. you know? took a while to get the vocal as well. It took a long time to be able to hit the notes properly. I feel like even probably could do, even do a better job of it after touring it and playing it live now. Well, yeah, we I ended up was, cutting it from the set for good week when you know you're you got lost your voice because you were sick because it's so high part of that was finding the right mic too i think um because it, you tried it a lot of times you know all different mics and when you're close on a mic it, the range is so huge where some of the slow you know ray down here and then you're blasting at the top of your register and it's very hard for a single microphone to handle all that so uh, i said we should try the calls which is a ribbon mic and you well, you were like a foot, 18 inches away from that. And put just putting that air between the voice and the microphone lets it breathe and lets it the dynamics be held. And we also, it gives it like a sort of vintage feel too. We also tried it with turning the speakers on in the room as opposed to just headphones, which I'm learning I like singing basically without headphones on. I'll leave one on just slightly to hear timing and harmony, but hearing the direct movement of air from your mouth to your ear and hearing some of the feedback um, or getting feedback from actual speakers makes all the difference. It's like singing singing live. A Did you bit. just put it perpendicular? Uh, it, no, we had no, the we uh, had the um, shield. The shield. Yeah. Oh, and and we just had it quiet. Mm. Well, that's half the time when I like I say I'm always recording these things badly. Sometimes it's not just because I'm lazy and I don't want to set up the mics. It's because if I put headphones on it, I mean it changes your psychology, but it also. I just I'm not good at it. Like I think you could become good. Obviously, people are good at that, but I've never gotten good at singing with headphones on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Bono's uh, uses a wedge and a. Do we have 58. to make everything about Bono? Yeah. <laughs> he does. Um, uh, he's, Bono, he's a it. good singer, you know. No, yeah, he's a great singer. Um, this it, on in our set, this song was third or fourth, I think, and I could felt like I could tell if it was going to be a really good show. It, based on the response to this because when they, when people shut the fuck up and listened to this song and really got into it I knew it was going to be a really good show and people were going to go with, go with us wherever we wanted to go and then occasionally you could see where people would just like wanted to talk through this song yeah. I was like oh it's going to be one of those types of crowds um, alright the last song on the album is 4543 uh, by Daniel Congos yeah this song is pretty cool because it uses a bar of four <laughs> Um, a bar. I I had an idea. It was late at night, and I I don't know. I was just thinking about time signatures and that kind of stuff. And I was like, why don't I try a shifting time signature that feels natural? So, um, 
if you if you add it up, it's four plus five plus four plus three equals sixteen. So it kind of feels like four bars of four. So it doesn't feel unnatural because I, I didn't want to make a track where it's all about a time signature or all about some kind of gimmick or whatever. So, but I just wanted it to feel not normal. Um, so that was the I just started messing around with that and then messing around with some synth parts. It, it started instrumentally basically, and then the vocal came later. Yeah, you had this demo also for a while before we recorded it, mm-hmm. and I, if I'm not mistaken, it was the end bit we didn't have right. It was just was I just that, had a we couple were, verses and a cor- like a you were chorus. trying to like write another section or flesh it out or something. Yeah, and I will take credit for this idea as I I I just liked the vibe of it from the get go, and I liked the sort of resignation you know it had had a sentiment of resignation to me you know lyrically but also harmonically and it just felt like okay i just want to sit in this for a while i don't need it to change i don't need to hear a chorus Mm. or some other section and so after the second verse you know where it starts i don't need a different da 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 and um i said well just write 10 more phrases along those lines you know and let's build this swell and make it sort of wash out into a psychedelic slur you know mm. and it's more like a drone basically of a song it's like kind of yeah when you wrote the lyrics for this did you have a hard time with it metrically what i mean is on certain songs i've got that are, are in odd meters or like repeat after me it, when i started writing the bridge or the chorus i had to get quite methodical about like syllable counting to help <laughs> me think of things because it's I'm not used to singing in odd meters, so it didn't come naturally. Like you can just go around the loop in four four and like see what works and sounds right. I had to actually think like, okay, I'm looking for a six syllable uh, little grouping or whatever. I found the that well, the first line I wrote was I got this feeling that I never got quite like a little play. I got my timing quite right. I just, you know, I'm obviously making a little reference to the track. Uh, right. Got quite my time, and then there's a pause. Quite my time in right and once you get into that mentality of just leaving a space where you need one rather than trying to fill it right. it can lead to a different way of writing lyrics i think so it's because it's hard to fit stuff if you're trying to fit it sometimes it's easier to just intentionally fuck them up and then the intention is what carries it yeah because i'm working on a song now that's in like a weird seven slash four grouping and, I t- <laughs> <laughs> and i'm struggling to get certain I, I gets to a chorus and I can't conceptually come up with anything because my brain's like hiccuping on the rhythmic grouping of the words. Right, you yeah. know, that's um, Bob Dylan's a master. If you just if you just put Bob Dylan on, on headphones when you go to sleep, <laughs> like a book on tape. But he's the absolute master, I think, of just total freedom in his phrasing and everything, and it's so loose but it still feels so natural especially on his later records especially when we saw him at (laughs) the Coliseum in Phoenix he had absolute freedom on every song because every song he sang with the exact same melody and the exact same rhythm he sang there must be some kind of way along the watchtower he sang it like this he went there must be some kind of way out of here (laughs) <laughs> and he sang every single song like it was fucking hey, awesome Mr. he barely acknowledged, man. yeah he barely acknowledged the crowd once it was fucking amazing home <laughs> uh, what's that song homesick subterranean blues yeah, Is yeah. That, i feel like that in the should be included in the history of hip-hop because it really is one of the early versions of that's effectively rapping like mm. spoken word and it's really interesting and i think Snoop Dogg actually was like that in some of his early stuff of, of playing across the beat and yeah. saving a rhyme for like the next bar. And it was, it's really interesting. Busta Rhymes does that really interestingly. And I feel like that right now yeah. has been so forgotten as like one of the primary focuses of hip hop, obviously, is the lyrics and the rhythmic application of those lyrics. And it's just gotten fucking idiotic. Or now, if, they most take, of it. if they take an ending rhyme and they put it on the f- first phrase the modern dudes, they make too much out of it. Whereas if you listen to Snoop Dogg, Big Boy, Big Boy, Mystical and Big Boy have very similar phrasing actually, yeah. where they, they'll do that, but they throw it away. And it's so fucking cool because they're doing some of the coolest, most creative phrasing you've heard, 
but they're just like completely throwing it away. It sounds so casual. Yeah, like when but, Kanye West does sometimes things like that. Well, it's he's either doing that or he's just making mistakes. I can't tell. But he does it in a way that it's like he wants immediate applause for doing something that's slightly clever. Whereas yeah, it's, what you're like saying, like bringing your attention to it. Whereas yeah. mystical and big, like big boy, will do stuff where it's just so fucking casual, but it's actually really difficult it's what like, he's doing. It's like the difference between a sleight of hand magician and, and one of the guys who has to fill an <laughs> arena. You know, where yeah. he like looks at you every time he does a little trick. Kanye West <laughs> is the Chris Angel of rap. <laughs> 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 Big Boy is my all-time That's favorite. Giving Kanye West too much credit. I like That's true. <laughs> he has my all like as far as his feel and rhythm and yeah. phrasing and his ability to push the beat and still make it laid back. Big Boy is my, yeah, he's, my he, favorite. It's really difficult what he and Mystical do. Mystical is some just kind of otherworldly sometimes. <laughs> um, Not just because of his name. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the 1929 part one. Uh, hopefully you got a chance to see it live. Uh, if not, we should be announcing a couple shows here and there uh, coming up f- relatively soon. So keep an, an ear out for one or two shows around the Well, country. next one we have announced, which is Florida. We're playing the festival, Sand Jam Festival, on the oh, Friday, right. I think it is. April 26th. Um, that day is headlined by Kings of Leon. Well, we're, they're closing out the night. Yeah, we're there. We'll headline we're headlining just like playing way before them. Yeah. yeah. They're probably pretty stoked to see us again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, 1929 Part 1. Let's, let's just say this. Go on. If you if you have Apple Music, Spotify, all that, you know, save it and add it to your playlists and share it. You know, that, that we are independent now. That helps us um, spread the word and, and get the playlists out there if you add them to your own personal ones. And people have been asking about the CD because I know some people still like having CDs. Uh, those are up now, right, Colton? And we're going to be selling those signed. We're going to sign all of them. We haven't got a ton of them left over from after tour. We're going to sign them, and uh, they'll be up on the website now. We'll as sell you the listen sign to ones for more. I mean, surely. I think well, I think we're probably going to sell them all signed. Either way, just go to the website, uh, congress.com, go to the store, and our, you'll see our, them. Our autograph has to have some value, even if it's a dollar more. <laughs> the dollar is pushing it. 13 cents um all right guys we'll see you next week um go to our patreon page if you want to help support this podcast two dollars a month helps uh, get the ad-free version it just helps us keep feeding cookies cracker habit. Mm-hmm.